0: Today is December tenth, 2018, and before introducing today's guest, I want to encourage listeners to go to econtalk.org, econtalk.org, and in the upper left-hand corner, you'll find the link to our annual survey where you can vote for your favorite episodes of the year, tell us about yourself and your listening experience, and now for today's guest. Historian and author Stephen Kotkin of Princeton University, where he is the John P. Berkman Professor in History and International Affairs, co-director of the Program in History and the Practice of Diplomacy, and director of the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies. He is also a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Among many books, he is the author of a massive award-winning biography of Joseph Stalin. Stephen, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. Our topic for today is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We're taping this on December 10th, the day before Solzhenitsyn's 100th birthday, if he were alive. And we did two episodes earlier this year with Kevin McKenna of the University of Vermont on In the First Circle. Today's conversation is based loosely on an essay he wrote for the Times Literary Supplement on a number of recent books by and about Solzhenitsyn. I want to begin with his impact as an historian who's written on Stalin, among many others – I know you've thought and written about the role of individuals in history versus larger forces. It's a common issue in uh, thinking about history generally. How would you describe Solzhenitsyn's impact on history?
1: Second most important after Stalin himself. Solzhenitsyn was able, as a single human being, to blacken the image of the Soviet Union globally. Even though he was prohibited from publishing most of his works inside the Soviet Union, they nonetheless appeared and spread, usually underground, sometimes through denunciations of him. So he had a massive impact at home as well as abroad, and this impact was devastating for the Soviet system. Many people believe the Soviet system had redeeming features, for example, Hitler, Nazism, was absolutely beyond redemption. The Holocaust and what Hitler did made it seem that if you said anything nice about the Nazi system, you were apologizing for it. In the case of the Soviet Union, people imagined that there was a better revolution inside the Stalin regime somehow. That 1917 was a purer, better form of socialism that had been usurped or degraded by Stalin's rule. Solzhenitsyn proved the contrary. Not only did he prove the contrary, but he did it in a way that tens of millions of people were interested to read. So that's an incredible
0: accomplishment now on his centenary. And when you think about his impact, obviously we see it uh, through his work and the reaction that he engendered, as you say, in the public as well as with Soviet leadership. But it would be an interesting thought experiment to think about had he not had the courage to do what he did or had his work not survived, not gotten outside the camp, not been dispersed through uh, various uh, underground networks and then made its way to the West. Would – do you think Soviet history and world history would have been different, and if so, how?
1: Yes. The debate we had about the Soviet Union, it's much muted now. It's hard for us to appreciate, the Soviet Union has been gone for more than a quarter century. However, while the Soviet Union still existed, the debate about its reformability, its redeemability, and why we should have a detente with the Soviet Union, and why maybe even the Soviet and American systems were evolving in the same direction, in what was called convergence theory. Those debates were really important debates and confusing. Solzhenitsyn entered into those debates with the searing moral authority of having suffered, long suffered under that system. And he brought the voices of all who suffered under that system to the fore in his work. This achievement, it was not paralleled by anybody else. Yes, there were many other courageous people. Yes, there were people right there at the Hoover Institution, like Robert Conquest, who wrote magnificent books about the tr- covering the truth of the Soviet Union. However, Solzhenitsyn did something more. What he did was to show the Soviet Union was evil, not just from a political point of view, but from a moral point of view. And he did it in a way that was
0: persuasive. Yeah, I find it fascinating. Uh of course, in the 20s, in the 1920s, there were a lot of apologists who who believed or hoped that the Soviet system was creating a new a new man, a new human being, a new system, a, a better system. There are people who lied on its behalf, who covered it up, who trusted the propaganda that was pumped out by that system and the lies that were told when people visited there. You know, I can't help but think of Walter Durante as a shameful uh, piece of that story. And a lot of Western intellectuals, of course, uh, fell prey to that. They, they were eager to believe that something new and better was going on. And then there came a time, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but it, there became an awareness somewhere between, I would say, 1935 and 1955, You'll be more precise, that that something was very rotten there, that there was an incredibly oppressive regime, that it abused its citizens in terrible ways. And although a handful of people, intellectuals, continued to apologize for the system or for Stalin, most Westerners uh, turned against the Stalin, Stalin's vision. Why did it take – so what's the independent contribution – of, say, Solzhenitsyn's firsthand accounts in the Gulag Archipelago that he collected his own story and that of, of dozens and dozens of other zeks, other political prisoners. What was the extra impact of that literary achievement above and beyond what was somewhat well-known? Well-known maybe, Russ.
1: We have to remember that the French Communist Party was Stalinist. During the whole period of Stalin's rule, and even after Stalin died and was denounced, we also have to remember that many people downplayed the evil nature of the regime. regime. That is to say, they would acknowledge yes, there were famines, yes, millions of people died, but these were not intentional, these were mistakes, these were not core to the system. The Gulag, where the labor camp, otherwise known as the labor camps, where millions of people were incarcerated, often for so-called political crimes, these were not so big. The numbers were exaggerated. Yes, there were excesses, but nonetheless, even Stalinism was not beyond the pale. Let us also remember that in this confusing debate where some people defended Stalinism, once again, Russ just about nobody got away with defending the Hitler regime. In this confusing debate where some people, including prominent people, defended Stalinism, we also had a large number of people who saw a better revolution inside the Soviet regime, which maybe could be recuperated once Stalin died. So Khrushchev's secret speech which denounced Stalin for his crimes, was actually an attempt to rehabilitate the Soviet system. It harkened back to a purer version of the revolution, supposedly associated with Lenin and with Leninism. So that Stalin became a cult of the personality in Khrushchev's term, a degradation of the revolution. And therefore, there would be a second wind, a socialism with a human face or communist reform. Many people were newly attracted to the Soviet phenomenon upon Stalin's death. In fact, there was a split on the left between those who denounced Stalin and those who continued to praise Stalin. What both sides shared was a belief in either the Stalin version of the revolution or an original Lenin version of the revolution as being historically necessary and correct. We forget those debates because now, of course, very few people will defend that history the same way. But that's the context in which Solzhenitsyn arrived, and he started out. He started out trying to figure how he could capture, describe this reality, and he wrote a couple of really important novels on the labor camps from firsthand experience. And they stood the test of time. In fact, in 1970, he won the Nobel Prize in Literature for these novels. And we know them as One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. We know them as In the First Circle. And, of course, Cancer Ward. So he won the Nobel by tackling these themes. But that wasn't the big impact yet. The big impact came from the Gulag Archipelago which would be published not in the Soviet Union, but abroad, beginning in the early 1970s, 1973, after he had won the Nobel. And that book was one of the main ways in which many people, not just intellectuals, but the mass readership, the public, the kind of people who are core to any country's democratic order, those people began to see that the regime was rotten in its roots, that there was no better revolution inside the Stalin regime. That Stalin's years of the 1920s through 1953 were no better, or I'm sorry, no worse than Lenin's 1917 coup d'etat in October 1917. And so this achievement of Solzhenitsyn 1,800 pages, much longer than War and Peace, longer than Homer's Iliad and Odyssey combined, and yet readable, a page-turner in many ways. For sure. Yes, this incredible achievement, which was well-documented despite him having zero access To the secret archives, of course, today people like myself and other scholars, we can read those archives, but Solzhenitsyn had no access to those whatsoever. He read published sources, Soviet newspapers and other periodicals. Soviet books, and of course, his own life experience and the life experience of 226 other political prisoners whom he interviewed and whose stories are related in that magnificent three volume Gulag. Archipelago, the first volume, as I said, of which appeared in 1973. This is a singular achievement. There was nothing else like it. And so all those people who are making these fine distinctions between Leninism and Stalinism, between the original revolution and its supposed degradation, now had to contend with what Solzhenitsyn showed, which was that the Gulag started years before Stalin. And his despotism. Before Stalin was the sole ruler, the system was in place. And it was in place from the beginning.
0: And it feels, you know, as a non specialist in the area, it feels like it's even more than just the historical fact that, that there was oppression before Stalin, it's also the, the intellectual corruption and impossibility of the ideals of the Soviet system just shines through over and over again in his work. I used to tell – I think I've told listeners before, but uh, when when I used to teach undergrads, uh, on the last class, I would recommend a series of books I didn't think they might think of reading that I would recommend, encourage them to read. And for years, over a decade, uh, certainly in the 80s and and a lot of the 90s, I would recommend that they read the Gulag Archipelago just out of Tribute to his courage uh, yeah. in, in writing that book. That I, I felt like morally he deserved from people to read that book. Uh, I'd I also would recommend uh, Ann Applebaum's book, The Gulag, which is a very nice shorter uh, version of the history. And of course, there's now a one volume uh, version of the Gulag Archipelago that, as you write uh, in your essay, that Solzhenitsyn approved of. If I got to th- have that right, yes. So. Uh, you mentioned some of the of his interactions with the regime in passing. I, I, I want you to talk about the roller coaster of his relationship with the Soviet leaders. You know, it begins, in some sense, with his imprisonment after returning as a veteran from World War II. So he's, he's at, he suffers at Stalin's hands. He's then somewhat rehabilitated by Khrushchev. Then he's on the outs again. So he has this incredible up-and-down relationship with authority – and at the same time, it seems like much of the time the authorities don't know what to do with him and and have unleashed him uh, with effects that they didn't anticipate. So I, I get the feeling, and tell me if I'm wrong, that Khrushchev thought uh, he was using Solzhenitsyn to advance his own uh, political aspirations in, in putting down Stalin. But eventually he just lost control of that. You're right, Russ.
1: Solzhenitsyn was somebody who served in the Soviet army in World War II. He was part of that invasion force that swept into Poland and then Prussia on its way to Berlin. In the midst of that, he was arrested for some indiscreet comments about Stalin, which were normally would be considered harmless, but in such a regime as the Stalin regime were considered a political crime. And so he was sentenced, sent to the gulag, the labor camps. By the way, we should acknowledge that it was Solzhenitsyn who made that word gulag widespread in multiple languages, including English. Of course, he was released eventually, uh, and Khrushchev, like you said, did see him as an instrument in this de-Stalinization, Khrushchev was denouncing Stalin's crimes and excesses, not denouncing, for example, collectivization of agriculture, where millions of peasants died and were ensla- and the survivors were enslaved. He was not denouncing the state-owned and state-led so-called planned economy. He was not denouncing the Communist Party's monopoly on power and the censorship on the public sphere. He was denouncing, that is, Khrushchev was denouncing, Stalin's arrests and execution executions of loyal communist cadre. And so it was a kind of keep the system, but get rid of the excesses. And for that, the denunciation of the camps that one could see in Solzhenitsyn's novels looked like an important instrument that Khrushchev could use. So, in fact, one day in the life of Ivan Denisevich was approved by Khrushchev for publication in the Soviet Union. And it's a story about one of the labor camps was loosely based on Solzhenitsyn's firsthand experience. However, Solzhenitsyn soon enough, as you alluded to, ran afoul of the authorities. Because Solzhenitsyn was something that the regime didn't count on. First of all, he was very determined and resolved. He was resolute. Unlike a lot of the intellectual class who wanted, let's say, favors, apartments, awards, a better life, recognition, a mass audience. Solzhenitsyn wasn't against those aspects of a literary life, but he was after much more. He was after the truth. He was writing not because he needed to become famous, but because he believed in a different moral universe opposed to the Soviet regime. Solzhenitsyn was a Russian nationalist and the Soviet regime was supposed to be above nationalism and incorporating a so-called brotherhood of peoples. Solzhenitsyn was a conservative, not on the left. He hated Marxism, Leninism, and revolution. Solzhenitsyn was also a Christian, and the Soviet regime, of course, was officially atheist and attempted to suppress Christianity and destroyed thousands of churches, also attacking mosques and synagogues. So Solzhenitsyn was came from a different moral universe with a different set of beliefs. And he was not as susceptible to the blandishments that many people in the intelligentsia who complained about the regime, that many people were susceptible to. So he was very difficult to handle for the Soviet regime. Moreover, we now have the secret documents, KGB documents and Politburo documents about Solzhenitsyn, which were published a number of years ago as the Solzhenitsyn files which shows exactly as you suggested that the regime didn't know how to handle him you see for example dmitry ustinov who was laying at brezhnev's minister of defense brezhnev was the head of the soviet union following khrushchev for 18 years during the from the mid 60s through the early 80s His Ministry of Defense, Dmitry Ustinov, at a Politburo meeting said that if we try to organize a denunciation of Solzhenitsyn in our organizations, meaning in all the party cells across the country, it might not turn out the way we hope or the way we want. In other words, they were afraid that Solzhenitsyn and his belief system and his written works could spark not a pro-Soviet consolidation, but in fact critiques of the Soviet Union from a Russian nationalist and from a Christian conservative point of view. And so yeah, he was trouble for them, trouble in a big way. They had a lot of issues, don't get me wrong. Solzhenitsyn wasn't the only one. They had economic issues, Russ, which of course you understand well. They had Eastern Europe, which was in revolt. Soviet satellites of Eastern Europe, which was supposed to be a security belt that they acquired in World War II, but instead had become a source of vulnerability, like in Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia in 1968, the so-called Prague Spring. They had multiple vulnerabilities, but somebody like Solzhenitsyn, they had no answer for, and he was only a single individual, and yet they feared him And they didn't know what to do. Finally, they bundled him onto a plane and deported him uh, to the West, where he lived the next 20 years of his life. Beginning, yes, beginning in the early 70s. And so, this life in the West, however, which is also an important subject, we must remember that Solzhenitsyn wrote in Russian for the audience back home. He not only wrote open letters to the Soviet leadership, all his novels, all his political tracts and interviews and speeches, they were directed at his homeland. He was trying to affect change at home, even when he lived those 20 years in exile in the West.
0: Do you think uh, you find it surprising uh, that they didn't kill him? Obviously – Uh, Stalin would have killed him if he'd known what he would have have become. He killed people for far less than that. Um, Do you find it – do we know anything about those internal debates about whether that was talked about or considered?
1: The regime changed. When Stalin died in 1953, it was still the same regime obviously, and it was still the same people in power. Just Stalin was gone. But the ability to enact mass violence on their own people had diminished. It had diminished in part because of external changes in the world but also because of internal changes. Yes, they could still execute some people. Yes, they could still organize, for example, accidents, fake car accidents to get rid of people. But They didn't have the same wherewithal, either ideologically or even their own determination to just wipe people out. And so what they began to do instead was a combination of internal exile, which had always been practiced but now was practiced more in lieu of executions, and what they called prophylaxis which was to try to preempt people like Solzhenitsyn by either intimidating them or seducing them with offers of goodies. So that change in tactics by the KGB marks a change in Soviet society from uneducated, 3rd or fourth grade education for the most part on average to completion of high school education, completion of college education, and plus, as we said, external changes in the world. So there was no longer Nazism in Germany and fascism in Italy and Hirohito's regime in Japan. And so the ability to just kill people in large numbers because they were dissidents, they disagreed with you, they criticized you, was sort of lost by the regime. And so they did Solzhenitsyn what they did to many other people. Bukovs, Vladimir Bukovsky, for example, Andrei Sakharov, for example. They tried to banish them internally and cut them off from the public. It worked in many cases. It didn't work in the case of Bukovsky. it didn't work in the case of Sakharov, and obviously it didn't work in the case of Solzhenitsyn. But they were exceptions. Many other people were broken, as we would be probably in such circumstances. They made their peace with the regime, or they simply were trying to survive. They had families, they had livelihoods. Not everyone could be Solzhenitsyn. Sakharov or Bukovsky, And so the regime's uh, new policy of internal deportation silencing and or prophylaxis preemption worked to a very great degree against the dissident movement. It just didn't work against somebody like Solzhenitsyn.
0: So you get the idea, certainly from reading in the first circle, and I would say just just screams out from the man that First of all, there's the moral courage that you that you alluded to earlier. But, but there's also a um, another advantage he had, I think, in in standing up to the regime's threats and uh, blandishments, which was he, he appears to believe very deeply in the redemptive nature of suffering. And I'm curious if in his uh, youth, or his upbringing, or his personal experiences before he entered the camps. Uh, other than the fact that I know he was a big fan of Dostoevsky, who also, I think, believed in the redemptive power of suffering. I'm curious if if we have any hints as to what made him so distinctive, so strong, so powerful in, in not being broken. There's a determination
1: there, which has to be attributed in part to personality. This goes back to your earlier question, Russ, about had there been no Solzhenitsyn, Maybe things would have turned out the same. Maybe somebody else would have stepped up and played this role in history. As, For example, history selects people for certain roles, and this was a role that needed to be played. And if it hadn't been for Solzhenitsyn, someone else would have been found. Well, I have to say that writing about Stalin, I don't believe that. Stalin's personality was absolutely crucial. It took a person like Stalin to impose this system and stabilize it the way he did at those colossal human costs. And I see very few, if any, people besides Stalin inside that regime, as horrible as those other people were, as low a view they took on human life as they did, I see very other people with that same combination of resolve and skill. That Stalin brought to that immense task of building socialism, as he called it. That is to say, imposing that system. Solzhenitsyn, in the opposite direction, is a similar, unique personality. That combination of moral values beyond corruption, as well as resolve and determination no matter how much he suffered. Solzhenitsyn discovered a lot of Russian philosophy and Russian authors, that is to say uh, literary figures, over the course of time. Partly it was in Soviet education to begin with. For example, figures like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were brought back into the curriculum under Stalin. Partly it was looking as he did for unorthodox figures that were not part of the official Soviet schooling. Many of them he discovered only when he got out to the West and he could read the emigration in full. For example, when he worked at the Hoover Institution Library and Archives, or he worked through other emigre publications that were sent to him or preserved in different locations besides the Hoover one. And so he discovered reinforcement of views that he had developed partly on his own through growing up in that country and just partly because he was looking for a value system beyond the Soviet one even while he was still there. And so his education in the broadest sense, his upbringing, his intellectual trajectory is a really big story. And we have some pretty good biographies which try to trace this. But even so, some mystery remains about the person, about this combination, as I'm calling it, right, of moral force and just in general stubbornness or political resolve as well as moral resolve. This is what's special about him, Russ. And so we have to acknowledge that he's not alone. Other people shared this, including some who are not famous, who died in the camps alongside him, or who survived the camps as invalids, or were not great writers, and so couldn't transmit their stories the same way that he could. We don't want to make him seem to be one person among 300 million, but nonetheless, he speaks for those others who were less eloquent and even those courageous others, he stands
0: out against that background. In the novel In the First Circle, which we've talked about here in those episodes I mentioned earlier, I think there are four chapters that relate to Stalin and they're, it's quite lengthy. Um, some editors would have cut them. They don't add a lot to the plot directly. Uh, they're sort of a, in, they, they could be interpreted, I, I don't think this is correct, but they could easily be interpreted as a an indulgence uh, on the part of Solzhenitsyn to get it off his chest, to to satirize and and poke fun at Stalin. His portrait of Stalin is, I would say, Stalin as egotistical buffoon, as um, a, a petty child, as an insecure enfant terrible. And and I I was also struck watching uh, the movie that came out recently, The Death of mm. Stalin which I watched with some unease, I have to say. Uh, I didn't find it funny. It's supposed to be a comedy, sort of a comedy. It's the darkest kind of humor that paints Beria and Khrushchev and, and the survivors of St- Stalin himself as well as sort of comic book uh, keystone cops, inept, uh, blundering this way and that. And um, what are your thoughts on on First Social portrait, of, of Stalin and, um, and on the movie, if you have any thoughts on it.
1: It's tough. What do you do with a guy like Stalin when the evil is so immense, scale is just unfathomable, and you yourself suffered directly under him? Solzhenitsyn's portrait of Stalin is not really successful, except as an exercise in kind of psychological revenge. He diminishes Stalin, as you said. He makes Stalin out to be a nothing, a nobody. And in some ways, it was Solzhenitsyn's uh, criticism or joking about Stalin that put him in the gulag in the first place. Mm -hmm. That launched all of what happened, including Solzhenitsyn's successful blackening of that regime at its roots. And so in some ways, the In the First Circle returns to that 1945 episode. However, it isn't integral to the novel and it isn't a successful portrait, however understandable it is psychologically. Sometimes we forget that evil is also human, that Stalin was a human being, that Hitler was a human being, and that the more we understand them as humans, the scarier their evil becomes. It doesn't mean we justify them. It doesn't mean we validate them, we make excuses for them, but it does enable us to reach a level of understanding. Solzhenitsyn was not interested at at all in moral or political or, or biographical terms of reaching an understanding of Stalin's character. He was just interested in countering Soviet propaganda And belittling this figure who had been inflated the way he had been. If you take Yanucci's movie, The Death of Stalin, Yanucci is a great film director, and many people find the film entertaining. And of course, uh, it is very clever, and there are moments uh, that I found uh, funny. Uh, Not the whole movie, but many moments, which were, I thought, hilarious. At the same time, and also I'm not afraid to engage in satire when it comes to even something as monstrous as the Stalin regime. Brooks did it for the Hitler regime. Yep. Charlie Chaplin did it yep. for Hitler. When it's done well, it can be very effective. However, one of the problems with Yanucci is that just like Solzhenitsyn's portrait of Stalin in in the first circle. Now, once again, it can make you feel good. But to portray that regime's operatives, those around Stalin when he died, Beria, Malenkov, Molotov, Khrushchev, kaganovich to portray them as idiots, as venal, corrupt politicians like we would find, I don't know, in in the urban political machine of any major city, right, yeah. graft and bribes and favors, to portray them as corrupt and venal in that way and then as not very intelligent is to miss, of course, how that system could have arisen in the first place and how it could have functioned if everyone was so stupid And if everyone was merely corrupt, the Soviet regime never would have happened. The people who ran the Soviet regime were not geniuses, but they weren't buffoons. They were blinkered ideologically, but they were effective administrators in a dictatorial regime, in a dictatorial way. And so the film, for me, falls short as a portrait of the reality there. I do recognize it once again as an entertainment, and it may be harsh to judge it in historical terms rather than as a piece of entertainment. However, as a piece of entertainment, it falls short from me, precisely because you can do satire well of a regime that big, but it's a little one-dimensional, ultimately. Yanucci, when he does this about a democratic, a Western political system, the U.S. system, the British system, it works much better. The stakes are lower because the political system doesn't matter as much and also because they don't have that monstrosity, that evil on a mass scale that these officials perpetrated. So I wish Solzhenitsyn had done better with his Stalin, but I acknowledge that he probably derived some pleasure
0: from being able to ridicule Stalin in print. Yeah, I would make a distinction between the two in the following way: between this, between Sohnitsyn's portrait of Stalin and the movie portrait in the Death of Stalin movie. And I, I don't know if this is uh, accurate or not, but in in the movie, I will not. Mm. There will be no spoilers here. But the opening scene I found quite quite powerful and and creepy. It's a concert scene. It did capture some of the. It tried to be humorous about it, but it did capture some of the uh, utter. Abject fear that people had of of being on the wrong side of of uh, of stalin and and it tried to be it didn't work for me aesthetically, but it tried to temper the buffoonery with periodic gunshots, people being just executed mm. in the in the background of the film, which which is an interesting way to try to deal with what we're talking about. But the reason I found Solzhenitsyn's portrait more affecting mm. and more effective is that while he did belittle the man. Uh We had the rest of the book, and the rest of the book is about the utter uh horror and um, human debasement that stalin was was perpetrating on on his fellow citizens and so I thought that contrast was quite powerful and and it and it i found that quite i think it went along too long, but i didn 't find that um it wasn't just a psychological exercise uh, you know a uh, catharsis in, hmm. in my view but that's um that's neither that's neither here nor there Let, let's let's move but i just want to get that on get that in um hmm. tell me why do you think there's a renewal of interest in solzhenitsyn as you point out historically it's incredibly important but at the same time as you point out the soviet union's been gone for over a quarter of a century the historical lessons it seemed to be uh, no longer relevant. I disagree, but many would argue that there's no threat of labor camps, as you say. There wasn't even the threat of mass imprisonment or execution after after the death of Stalin. Mm. It, on the surface, you could argue, so this is just an historical curiosity, an important figure who struggled and shows the courage of one man. Yet I think it's more than that. What are your thoughts?
1: You know… Solzhenitsyn's going to stay relevant, Russ. And the reason he's going to stay relevant is because uh, it's not just the system that's gone, not just the horrors that he described, which are now hopefully dead and buried, the way Stalin is dead and buried, but because he tapped into something larger. He tapped into this how to organize our politics when countries have different cultures. One of the things we've discovered about globalization and about integrating the world economically is that countries still have their cultures and their identities and that these matter. And that people often welcome economic integration, but not necessarily at the expense either of their own well-being economically or of what they value in cultural terms, in identity terms. And so Solzhenitsyn was ahead of the curve in speaking to those issues. He was arguing many years before the Soviet regime fell that the West could not universalize itself, that the institutions which made the West what it is and from which Solzhenitsyn benefited tremendously, living in freedom, owning private property, publishing without censorship. He understood those values. He appreciated those values. But he didn't think every country's history, tradition, and culture was amenable. Right, That, that combination, that package was amenable to the same institutions. That countries had national traditions national institutions, which had to be taken into account. And so the post-Soviet for him, which as I said, he was thinking about well before the Soviet regime collapsed in 1991, was a matter not of westernization per se. He wanted some measure of local rule, local self-rule, democracy at the local level. But he wanted to marry that with a strong centralized power in Russia because he felt that that was part of the Russian tradition. He wanted a spiritual renewal in Russia. He wanted a country based on morality, not solely or predominantly based on the law. He wanted many things which people in the West didn't understand and was one of the reasons behind his difficult reception, having been hailed as this great courageous dissident who helped blacken the Soviet regime he was then seen as a bizarre 19th century reactionary figure who criticized the West and its values and institutions and didn't understand the West but in fact the kind of liberal condescension the attempt to impose a single world view or a single political system across the globe which we've seen backfire in our lifetimes. That was something Solzhenitsyn worried about, and he presaged. And so he became a figure who fit in well with the post-1991, post-1990s, in fact, mood in Russia. And his works are assigned in high school in Russia today by uh, the official federal curriculum in Russia. And in addition, he can be read In the West, the same way that we read Holocaust literature, we of course hope that something like that never happens again. What happened to the Jews under Nazi rule? But yet we still read the Holocaust literature and it still speaks to us because it's about who we are and what we value and the kinds of moral choices in difficult moments under authoritarian or totalitarian regimes. Solzhenitsyn speaks to that in the West, even as he speaks to a Russian version of modernity, a Russian version of national traditions inside that country too. Not everybody is going to share Solzhenitsyn's views inside Russia today, and we wouldn't expect that, nor am I suggesting we accept them all uncritically. I'm merely suggesting that it's an important part of the conversation. And he's a major figure, even 10 years dead now, on the 100th anniversary of his birth. And he's a major figure for us. We don't live in Russia. We have different traditions here. But he's a major figure for us because we're struggling with this globalization, cultural divide, cultural identity, attempt to... Understand people who are left out, left behind, have a different point of view, get rid of the condescension towards them. Why was Brexit important? What did the Trump presidency, his election in the Electoral College, what did it reveal? It revealed that a large part of the country was unheard, that their voices weren't being heard. That's what Trump revealed, and that's what Brexit revealed, and that's to an extent what Solzhenitsyn foretold. Once again, we're not necessarily solving those issues that were revealed. The politics may be fake, but what I'm suggesting is the sentiments are real, and those sentiments are a worthy debate for us to have. And Solzhenitsyn fits into that debate here in the U.S. just as he fits in in Russia.
0: I encourage listeners to go back to the if you haven't heard it the episode we did with the Yoram Hazoni in his book The Virtue of Nationalism which you know is is kind of shocking uh it you, you kind of it's easy as a westerner or certainly as an american to think that the triumphal march of democracy and capitalism is going to sweep the world and there's some signs that that is a long-term trend but now there's some signs that maybe not so much and as you point out so Jensen took a lot of criticism in nineteen, in the eighties for for yes. being for being a, a reactionary, uh, for being a Christian, for being a nationalist in particular, which is what we're really talking about: this this tension between nationalism and universalism, whether you call it globalization, or, or universalism. And hmm. uh, he's also been accused. I'm curious, do you think he was an anti-Semite? I've heard that claim. No, uh, he was not. That's a really spurious
1: charge. Solzhenitsyn believed that religion was the primary determinant of a civilization. Why did he think that Russia had a separate identity? Because of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. He wrote a book about the Jews in Russia called 200 Years Together. And it was about how Jews and Russians were different civilizations once again because of religion. Now, we can argue that he's wrong, that religion is not the primary determinant of a civilization. I'm not suggesting that we accept that argument. I'm only suggesting that that was the argument he made, and that was the reason he differentiated between Russians and Jews, even though they had lived. 200 years together because Russians joined, uh, Jews joined the Russian Empire after or as a result of the partitions of Poland. When Poland was swallowed up at the end of the 18th century, that's when Russia, the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Empire, acquired a large Jewish population, which it did not have uh, before the late 18th century. And so the, the idea that they're separate civilizations because of religion does not constitute
0: anti Semitism. I agree with you, but you know when I when I said we're going to do a book club and in the first circle, uh, some of my readers on Twitter and listeners, uh, knowing I'm Jewish, said, "How could you do this?" He's an anti-Semite. And my view is, I don't particularly think he is an anti-Semite. Uh, I'm glad to hear you agree, but I still could enjoy in the first circle just like I enjoy uh, the Brothers Karamazov. office a magnificent book. I, I don't think Dostoevsky was just, was so friendly to Jews, but it's not really the. I still can learn a lot from him. It's not. It's okay. Um, Let's turn toward – let's close and talk about Stalin uh, a little bit. Uh, It's my impression that uh, his reputation on the streets of Moscow and elsewhere in Russia is on the rise. That's what we hear in the media. Is that true? Is he having something of a comeback reputationally?
1: Stalin – Will always be a major figure with uh, positive, as high positives, as well as negative views in Russia. And the reason is pretty simple, Russ. He won the war. Stalin was in power during World War II, the greatest war in recorded history, against that Hitler regime, and he was on the winning side. You can argue that. They won despite Stalin, not because of Stalin. You can argue that he contributed nearly to defeat and that if it hadn't been for Stalin, maybe they wouldn't have had to fight the war in the first place or certainly they wouldn't have suffered that level of casualties. You can make all sorts of arguments and qualifications about Stalin's role in that war, but you cannot take away the coincidence, the fact that that he was in power during the war. And so therefore, being on the winning side of the greatest war in history will always make Stalin a figure to be at least partially admired in that culture. In addition, he's seen as someone who stood up to the West, who created a nuclear-armed superpower, who helped divide the world with Churchill and Roosevelt and then with Uh, other leaders who succeeded Churchill and Roosevelt in the U.S. However, the same people who have this partial or even more than partial admiration for Stalin, many of them know the crimes he committed, the monstrosity of his rule, and they still nonetheless have these feelings of admiration for him. We shouldn't assume that it's because they're ignorant, that they don't know the truth, that if we could just tell them how many people perished in the famines, that they would back off of their positive views of Stalin. Stalin was, for better or for worse, a very major historical figure, perhaps the greatest historical figure in historical terms, not in moral terms, in that culture. And so it's impossible to do away with him. In fact, after Stalin died in 1953, he was still the most significant personality in that culture. And part of Khrushchev's failure upon attempting to succeed Stalin as the ruler of the Soviet Union was that he couldn't. He couldn't fill Stalin's shoes. He couldn't be Stalin. Now, Khrushchev and Stalin were a patron and client. right? They were teacher and disciple, and so we shouldn't expect that Khrushchev would be on that same level. But that's kind of the point I'm making. Stalin was on a very, Stalin was on a level different from most politicians, for better or for worse. Now, there are many people who detest Stalin alive in Russia today. There are many people who cannot stand the name, who when they see someone wearing a Stalin shirt, they or, or see Stalin memorabilia. It's revolting to them. The, their stomach turns. I'm not suggesting that the whole culture there is enamored of Stalin. But I'm also not surprised that a significant plurality still finds some reasons to
0: admire him through all that bloodshed. And you're writing a biography of Stalin that you've issued. You've published the first two volumes. Is that correct, two? And they come to 2,000 pages, although I'm sure that includes a lot of footnotes and and (laughs) references. Is there one more volume planned or more than one? And what's it like to spend that much time and that many pages with a person you view as a monster?
1: Yeah, uh, I do have one more volume scheduled, which I'm working on now which covers the period of World War II, the Cold War, Stalin's death, and the aftermath. And I'm hoping that in the next several years, I can bring the that volume to conclusion, and therefore the whole series to conclusion. I've spent now, as you say, a lot of time with Stalin. And it is very troubling. You see the evil on the pages, on those documents you read, with his pencil marks, his check marks in pencil, his underlinings, you see the orders to kill this person and that person, deport this whole nation. It's it's hard to describe in words, that experience. And as you say, over a number of years, it's cumulative. At the same time, Russ, if you're interested in power, you're interested in how power works, how it's accumulated, how it's exercised, And what the consequences of exercising power are? Stalin is really the gold standard. He's the gold standard of dictatorship. No dictator has amassed more power than Stalin, exercised it with greater consequence. Mao didn't have a military-industrial complex. And, of course, the Hitler regime went up in flames after only 12, horrible, yes, but only 12 years, while Stalin lasted three decades. So if you're interested in power, it's endlessly fascinating, but of course it is difficult on a day-to-day basis to continue to – I now am inside his head in ways that I wasn't before I started this project. I understand him, his way of thinking. I see why he made decisions he made, and I see the consequences of those decisions in the lives of people, and it it, it hurts to see that. And it hurts to understand that he didn't have to make those decisions. He could have been more magnanimous. He didn't have to kill the people he killed. His regime would have survived. It wasn't under threat. And so my job, in a way, is to convey from the inside, from the original documents, from a sense of deep empathy, not sympathy, but deep empathy and, or understanding, as we historians call it, empathy, of how that regime worked and why it happened the way it did. But no, we're not writing this biography because we have an exemplary figure. We're not teaching courage, valor, perspicacity, magnanimity. We're not teaching those values for which biography was originally invented. We're teaching the opposite of those things with this biography. But those are important lessons too.
0: So let's close with how you close your essay on Solzhenitsyn. You mentioned uh, that many people complained about his personality, uh, about Solzhenitsyn the man. He was bitter, immature, arrogant, etc. My reaction to that is uh, he was in the camps (laughs) – He's entitled to all the bitterness and all the arrogance. Uh, you got to cut in some slack. And he wasn't just a prisoner who was good at writing. It wasn't that lovely that he was able to use the prison experiences to craft some novels and, and unique historical documentation in the gulag. He was a genius. He had an incredible vision. He pumped out an unimaginable number of words under circumstances that human beings should not have to, to be in to start with. And they're Unbelievably entertaining. Like you said, he wrote, he wrote a history of the, of the gulag that's a page-turner. Mm. Um, so I don't really care if he's even vaguely normal. I'd expect him to be a troubled and complicated person. Uh, what are your thoughts on that and sort of that that sort of way of dismissing him, it seems to me?
1: The essay I wrote for the TLS, to which you're referring, which is published this week – um. My goal in that was, first of all, to make sure people understood that he was a great writer and that he will endure because he was a great writer, not just because he had a political point of view or was a political figure or was caught up in battling the Soviet regime. He's a great writer, and that's very important to acknowledge. The second thing is that our heroes, us; they're also complex people, and the complexities are fine. And we shouldn't be afraid of the complexities. And as you say, they don't diminish the achievements. Just like I do with our anti-heroes, with Stalin. Show the complexity, show the multiple dimensions, show that he had charm, show that people loved him because he was a people person and focused on their lives even as he was ordering the executions of others. That complexity is really important. And for Solzhenitsyn, on the other side, a hero, not an antihero, we also owe him. We owe him the respect of showing him in his full complexity, and I think his achievement only grows
0: when we do that. My guest today has been Stephen Kotkin. Stephen, thanks for being part of EconTalk. A great pleasure, Russ.